2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is the Men of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations, go to puritanaudiobooks.com. The following is taken from The Christian Ministry by Charles Bridges. The lack of a divine call to the ministry is a main cause of failure in the Christian ministry. We sometimes trace ministerial failure to the very threshold of the entrance into the work. Was the call to the sacred office clear in the order of the church and according to the will of God? This question bears with vast importance upon the subject. Where the call is manifest, a promise is assured. But if we run unsent, our labors must prove unblessed. Many, we fear, have never exercised their minds upon this inquiry. But do not we see the standing ordinance of the church written upon their unfruitful ministrations? I never sent them, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. The blast was not that their doctrine was unsound, but that they preached unsent. Under the old dispensation, intrusion into the priestly office was marked as a most dangerous presumption. Nor is it a less direct act of usurpation to take unwarranted authority in the Church of Christ. Our great head himself appeared with delegated, not with self-commissioned authority. Prophetically, he had declared his call to his great work. It was manifested to the world at the commencement as well as during the course of his public ministry. Often did he appeal to it as the credentials of his commission. Those who entered into the fold without his authority he stamps as thieves and robbers. And he only who entered in by the door of his divine commission was the shepherd of the sheep. The scriptural terms of ordination imply a direct controlling influence upon the agents. The various illustrations also of the office tend to the same point. We cannot conceive of a herald, an ambassador, a steward, a watchman, a messenger, an angel with self-constituted authority. The apostle asks with regard to the first of these, how shall they preach? except they be sent. They may indeed preach without a mission, but not as the messengers of God. No one can be an ambassador except he be charged expressly with instructions from a sovereign. Else would he deliver the fruit of his own brain, not his sovereign's will and commands. Nor can anyone legitimately come in the name of God to confirm the revelations of his will except by his own express appointment. God will seal his own ordinance, but not man's usurpation. As to the entrance to the sacred function, having no extraordinary commission, we do not expect an immediate and extraordinary call. Our authority is derived conjointly from God and from the church. 
that is originally from God, confirmed through the medium of the church. The external call is a commission received from and recognized by the church according to the sacred and primitive order, not indeed qualifying the minister, but accrediting him whom God had internally and suitably qualified. This call communicates, therefore, only official authority. The internal call is the voice and power of the Holy Ghost, directing the will and the judgment and conveying personal qualifications. Both calls, however, though essentially distinct in their character and source, are indispensable for the exercise of our commission. Both therefore unite in his government, who is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints, and whose unction of a rational, holy, and orderly character harmoniously combines with the constituted appointment of his will. How plainly do the superscriptions of Paul's epistles, with one or two exceptions, stamp his instructions to the churches with the seal of his heavenly commission. He is never weary of inculcating on us this truth, that the will of God is the sole rule of any man's call and the only gate by which he can enter into the ministry. The mission is divine in its fountain and institution, human in its channel and way of communication. It is therefore in this combined authority that we serve God with our spirit and the gospel of his Son, that we have the confidence that he will stand by us and own our work, and that we thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled us, for that he counted us faithful, putting us into the ministry. The external call, though necessary and authoritative in its character, yet is being the mere delegation of man is evidently not of itself a sufficient warrant for our work. The inward call is the presumptive ground on which our church delegates her authorized commission. Nothing can be more explicit than her solemn question to us. Do you trust that you were inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost to take upon you this office? Certainly, as Bishop Burnett remarks with his usual seriousness, the answer that is made to this ought to be well considered. For if any says, I trust so, that yet knows nothing of any such motion, and can give no account of it, he lies to the Holy Ghost and makes his first approach to the altar with a lie in his mouth, and that not to men but to God. Now, if there be any meaning in terms as illustrative of things, an inward movement by the Holy Ghost must imply his influence upon the heart, not indeed manifested by any enthusiastic impulse, but enlightening the heart under a deep impression of the worth of souls, constraining the soul by the love to Christ to spend and be spent for him and directing the conscience to a sober, searching self-inquiry, to a daily study of the word, to fervent prayer in reference to this great matter, and to a careful observation of the providential indications of our Master's will. However, that which no man ought to do, almost every man does, in making himself the sovereign judge of his own calling. A misguided bias, 
constitutional propensity, or worldly considerations often perplex the path and obscure the tokens of the divine guidance. May a man presume that he is thus inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost because his inclination leads him to the ministry, or he has been educated for it, or he is thrust into it by the wishes of friends, or even by parental counsel or authority. It would indeed open a wide door for enthusiasm to suppose that a bias of the mind was a sufficient warrant for this most solemn undertaking. Motives and feelings, individual characters and capacities are so often viewed through the medium of self-complacency that we are forcibly reminded of the sacred aphorism, he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. What would survive the fervor of the bias beside the melancholy exhibition of an unfurnished mind? or such a low standard of ministerial obligation as would bring the office into utter contempt. Nor must we admit parental interference in the choice of a work that wholly depends upon what Burnett calls a divine vocation. The National Church, as has been truly and feelingly stated by one who had a deep personal interest in the subject, groans and bleeds from the crown of its head to the sole of its feet from the daily intrusion of unworthy men into the ministry. From this source, the will of man must be in subserviency, not in forwardness on a point so deeply connected with the interests of the church. And where the will of God should govern the soul and ultimate decision, happy that person who can say with the apostle that it is through the will of God and not through his own, or that of his parents, that he is in the sacred ministry. Nor should personal and consistent piety, irrespective of other considerations, form our determination. No man indeed, as Bishop Burnett remarks, ought to think of this profession unless he feels within himself a love to religion with a zeal for it and an internal true piety which is chiefly kept up by sacred prayer and reading the scriptures. As long as these things are a man's burden, they are infallible indices that he has no inward vocation nor motion of the Holy Spirit to undertake it. Yet, on the other hand, every Christian is not ordained to be a minister. The examples of Aquila and Priscilla and the various helpers of the primitive church called over by name in the apostolical salutations clearly prove that devotedness to the cause of God is a component, an acceptable part of Christian obligation. In this wide field of service, laymen may exhibit the spirit of the ministry in perfect consistency with their secular employ, and without an unauthorized intrusion upon the express commission of the sacred office, the entrance into which, without, a divine call, the greatest talents, the most elevated spirituality, and the most sincere intentions cannot justify. Two grand combining requisites for this divine vocation may be determined to be a desire and a fitness for the office. 
The desire of the work was a prominent feature in the ministerial character and qualifications of Christ. While in the bosom of the Father and in the anticipation of his work, his delights were with the sons of men. When he comes into the world for the accomplishment of his work, the same earnest desire distinguished him. On one occasion of bodily need, he told his disciples that he had meat to eat that they knew not of, bidding them to understand that his delight in his father's work was to him more than his necessary food. The apostle strongly marks a constraining desire as a primary ministerial qualification, something far beyond the general Christian desire to promote the glory of God, a special kindling within, in character, if not in intensity, like the burning fire shut up in the prophet's bosom and overcoming his determination to go back from the service of his God. This constraint rises above all difficulties, takes pleasure in sacrifices for the work's sake, and quickens to a readiness of mind that were it not restrained by conscious unfitness and unworthiness, would save her a presumption. The sense of defilement almost shuts the mouth, but the sense of mercy fills the heart and it cannot stay. The work is more desirable than the highest earthly honor, so that even under the most desponding anticipations, it cannot be relinquished. The desire will be most enlivening when the mind is most spiritual, and will connect the communication of the blessing with ardent prayers for a large reciprocal benefit. It also should be a considerate desire, the result of matured calculation of the cost. This, we fear, has been sometimes lost sight of in the exchange of secular professions, more especially the Army and Navy, for the service of the altar. He that believeth shall not make haste. Waiting time is of the utmost moment to scrutinize the real principles of the heart, which have dictated an abandonment of the calling originally, as it was presumed, suggested by the providence of God in which ordinarily it is the will of God that we should abide. The relinquishment of a secular calling for the sacred office can never be justified in foro conscientu or be productive of ultimate advantage either to the individual or to the church without the clearest providential light, the most watchful caution against the influence of natural inclination is the interpreter of providence, the most earnest and persevering prayer and the most satisfactory evidence of abstraction from all motives of personal ease, indulgence, or self-interest. Under these circumstances, where the call is not evidently of God, a due contemplation of the difficulties and prospect, combined with a trembling sense of his own weakness, will probably direct the mind of the candidate to some less responsible undertaking. This inconsiderate desire will gradually weaken and die away, or if it should act presumptuously in pushing forward to the work, it will issue, unless the Lord should open his eyes, 
and bitter and unavailing fruits of repentance. It must also be a disinterested desire. Pure intention is indispensable to the meanest service and the Lord's work. Much more important, therefore, is it that our choice of the service of a sanctuary should be uninfluenced by the love of literature or the opportunities of indulgent recreation, that we should guard against desires of professional elevation, that we should be divested of the selfish motives of esteem, respectability, or worldly comfort, that we should seek not great things for ourselves, that we should aim at nothing but souls rather willing to win one to Christ and a world to ourselves and that we should exhibit a devoted consecration of all our talents to the service of God. He who is called to instruct souls, said Bernard, is called of God and not by his own ambition. And what is this call but an inward incentive of love soliciting us to be zealous for the salvation of our brethren? So often as he who is engaged in preaching the word should feel his inward man to be excited with divine affections, so often let him assure himself that God is there and that he is invited by him to seek the good of souls. To the same purpose, Questnell observes, one of the most certain marks of the divine call is where it is the purpose of a man's heart to live to labor and to possess nothing but for Jesus Christ and his church, where the heart is freed from selfishness and purely acted upon by the will of Rod and the readiness to labor for him, there is much encouragement to advance towards this holy function. The importance and purity of this desire are strongly marked as the grand qualifications to feed the flock of God. If I do this thing willingly, says the apostle, I have a reward. But if you do not feel in yourselves, as the eloquent Massillon addresses his clergy, a desire of being employed as the ambassadors of God, judge ye yourselves whether you are called into the Lord's vineyard. God implants a love in the heart for the service to which he calls and better would it have been for you to have felt that it was not the ministry for which you were intended than that you should possess a want of inclination for the performance of its duties. It is not necessary that a voice from heaven should say to you in secret, The Lord has not sent you. Your judgment enforced by the dictates of your conscience tells you so. But secondly... To this desire must be added a competent measure of ministerial gifts. Our Lord was furnished with this evidence of his call and endowment for his work. The apostle distinctly connects this ability with our commission, which he directs to be consigned not to faithful men generally, but to those among them which shall be able to teach others also. But as this subject has already come before us, we shall only observe that the ability for the sacred office is very distinct from natural talent, or the wisdom and learning of this world. These, though subordinately most useful and important, are nowhere mentioned as constituting the essentials of ministerial qualifications. A man of ordinary natural gifts, 
and under divine teaching may be able to pray, to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments, and to save immortal souls. And such a one has a far better claim to the title of a minister of Christ than an erudite scholar or accomplished theologian destitute of spiritual qualifications. In directing the ignorant in the way of heaven, in awakening the careless and insensible, in subduing the rebellious, and dealing with the entanglements of tempted consciences, how inefficient would be all the force of philosophical or historical illustration. One simple declaration of the gospel, on the other hand, would, with the Lord's blessing, remove the darkness melt away the stubbornness, and bring in all the consolation of heavenly light and peace. We doubt not but the true Christian minister well furnished with human learning without casting away this valuable gift, yet makes far more use of and estimates at a far higher value that learning which he has obtained in the secret place of the Most High. This is a fitness mainly though not exclusively, to be sought for. Let the novitiate be found in the daily habit of prayer, in the conscientious improvement of his natural gifts, in a diligent increase of his intellectual as well as spiritual stores, and he will find the promise made good. Whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundantly." In this course, he may largely encourage his desire to be duly admitted into the sacred office, soberly anticipating the results according to the will and word of God, but not regarding them as a warrant of his preparation or desire for the work. So important, however, is the combination of desire and capacity that neither, separated from the other, can be deemed sufficient the desire, though correctly answering to the standard of intensity, consideration, and purity, does not of itself attest a divine vocation. We cannot suppose the Lord to send unqualified laborers, however willing, into his vineyard, and none but he can qualify them. The servant of God therefore may be called to yield his most ardent wishes and the conscious inability to set forth the truth in an intelligent and effective form. Yet he may in this self-renouncing sacrifice console himself with the most gracious acceptance of his desires, though his services be not required. Nor will the richest furniture of ministerial gifts without a special desire and interest in the work though it may qualify the Christian for important usefulness as a helper of the church, evidence of movement by the Holy Ghost for this high and important service. But when the Lord constrains the heart of his servant with a desire and furnishes him with competent ability, when in the clear apprehension of the labor, pain, and difficulty of the work, he can yet say, none of these things move me, then may he seek to be set apart by the instrumentality of man, having the witness within him that he has been called by God. And such a call will be duly authorized by the presbyters of the church and will doubtless be yet more clearly attested by the divine blessing upon his work.
The providence of God, as we have before hinted, will probably afford more or less confirmation of this call. For this is a will within a will moving in harmonious conjunction, but in direct subserviency to his purposes respecting his church. If therefore these arrangements direct the choice of a secular calling, much more may we expect him thus to guide the inward call to his own work, a manner so deeply connected with the interests of his kingdom. The providential disposing, therefore, of a person's circumstances, thoughts, inclinations, and studies to this main end, the disappointment of his plans for a future course in life, the unexpected and repeated closing up of worldly avenues, unlooked-for openings in the church in the way of usefulness, not of preferment, some particular crisis in the individual's fear, some change or influence of family circumstances. One or more of these may prove the word behind him saying, this is a way, walk ye in it. Direction, however, will probably be given rather in opposition to indulgence of a constitutional propensity, damping a sanguine temperament and rousing an indolent habit. Wise and tender discipline will form the pliable spirit ready to discern and follow our Lord's will. The Lord usually trains his servants to waiting and a much conflict in their way to his immediate service. The judgment of Christian friends and especially of experienced ministers might be useful in assuring the mind, whether or not the desire for the work be the impulse of feeling rather than of principle, and the capacity be self-deceiving presumption. The late pious and learned Dr. Leland took this satisfactory view of his own case. Quote, God has been graciously pleased to give me some talents which seem capable of being improved to the edification of the church. He has disposed and inclined my heart to a willingness to take upon me the sacred ministry and that not from worldly carnal ends and views, but from a sincere intention and desire of employing the talents he has given me in promoting the salvation of souls and serving the interests of truth, piety, and righteousness in the world. And I have been encouraged by the judgment and approbation of several learned and pious ministers who after a diligent course of trials carried on for a considerable time, judged me to be properly qualified for that sacred office and animated me to undertake it. Upon seriously weighing all these things, I cannot but think I have a clear call to the work of the ministry. And I verily believe that if I rejected it, I should sin against God, grieve many of his people, counteract the designs of divine providence towards me, and alienate the talents he has given me to other purposes than those for which they seem to have been intended." Quote. The importance of this discussion will be generally allowed. To labor in the dark, without an assured commission, greatly obscures a warrant of faith and the divine engagements. And the minister, unable to avail himself of heavenly support, feels his hands hang down and his knees feeble in his work. On the other hand, the confidence that he is acting in obedience to the call of God 
that he is in his work and in his way nerves him in the midst of all difficulty and under a sense of his responsible obligations with almighty strength. Yet under no circumstances is there a warranted ground for distress and a simple consecration to the service of God. Let the minister in seasons of anxiety cast himself upon the mercy of God and doubt not of acceptance. But in closing, our consideration of this subject, we cannot forget that the inward call has not always accompanied the public investment with ministerial authority. With many of us, it is a painful recollection that we entered into the sacred office with hearts unenlightened with Christian doctrine and unimpressed with ministerial obligations. Yet let the remembrance of the sin be in humiliation, not in despondency. Let us be afflicted indeed for our unhallowed approach to the sacred altar, yet not swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. There is with our gracious God mercy for this as well as for any other sin, and we shall not apply to him for it in vain. Doubtless we should bear the sin in special remembrance to the end of our days, both as an occasion of magnifying the grace of God and as an incentive to redoubled exertions throughout our future course. In order to generate in our hearts this deepened contrition, it will be well to bring frequently before our minds, and especially at the annual return of the season of our ordination, the vows which we then took upon us, and in a new perception of their responsibility to consecrate ourselves to God afresh, with a full determination of heart through grace to fulfill them, thus receiving, as it were, a second commission with shame and self-reproach, and yet with thankfulness we shall be given to it. We shall have an evidence in our own souls that though at the time of ordination we were not moved by the Holy Ghost, we are so now, and if our conscience bear witness to us that we are now cordially renouncing whatever is inconsistent with our high and heavenly calling, we need not doubt of God's merciful acceptance in all our labors of love and in confirmation of his own word of a blessing to be conferred also on our own souls according to our labor. Charles Bridges, The Christian Ministry, The Call to the Office.